Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This month we're discussing Our Town, a film based on one of Mark Frost's favorite plays. Frost, of course, is one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks, so there's some direct influence there. But also just going through this adaptation from 1940 and seeing where there are interesting parallels, maybe some differences and so forth. This is part of my Small Town Blues series, where I talk about films from uh, the mid-20th century, usually about earlier years in the 20th century or uh, even before that, uh, small town life with like a dark side under the idyllic surface, so obvious connection to Twin Peaks there. And on my other podcasts on uh, Lost in the Movies, uh, I recently covered the film Holy Smoke, the Jane Campion film. This is a sort of follow-up to the discussion I put up in January on the piano. In this case, I actually have guests on board Em and Steve from the No Ship Network that produced uh, Sparkwood and 21 Twin Peaks podcast. So we discuss this film about Kate Winslet as a cult member who's getting pulled out by Harvey Keitel. Interesting cast and dynamic going on there. On my Patreon, my recent episodes, I have a January end of February episode up since I last uh, recorded Twin Peaks Cinema publicly. In this case, both of them have Twin Peaks Cinema exclusives for patrons. Uh, one of them will, fair disclaimer, be coming out on the public feed in a few months, so it's not going to be that exclusive for that long. The other one will be more like half a year. But those two films are On Dangerous Ground, the Nicholas Ray film noir, uh, and then also The Sweet Hereafter, the Canadian film from the late 90s that is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And has really fascinating connections to Twin Peaks. So in addition to those, I also do Twin Peaks reflections on various characters, locations, storylines, etc. I talk about um, other, like the, the book of the suite hereafter and uh, some pod, other podcasts that mentioned it. Different topics in there. I also read from uh, past reviews that I've published. That In one case, On Dangerous Ground, an earlier review I published about 10 years ago, and then also the film Affliction, which was another uh, film based on a Russell Banks book. Russell Banks wrote The Sweet Hereafter. So that's what's going on on those podcasts. And on Twin Peaks Conversations, I also have had uh, two podcasts since this last recording. One of them is with Mark Givens, the author of Murder at Teal's Pond, about Hazel Drew, uh, a girl from, again, a small town, obvious connections here, who was killed near uh in the in like the woods by a pond exactly like laura palmer this was in mark frost town so he knew about this case and it influenced uh twin peaks so i talked to the author of a book about this case and dig into all kinds of fascinating stuff there like always this is split over youtube and then the larger part uh for five dollar a month patrons on patreon.com slash lost in the movies other conversation was with Courtney Stallings, the author of Laura's Ghost, really fascinating book of interviews with both fans and um, women involved with Twin Peaks, Grace Zabriskie, Cheryl Lee, all talking about Laura Palmer, the importance of that character, um, the difficulties she faced, how people relate to it. A really powerful book, so we talk a lot about the themes there and some other stuff um, in the Patreon part about like season three and Sarah and ideas about what's going on there. So really great conversation there as well. Uh, I'll link all of this, of course, in the show notes. So now on to our town. The date is June 7th, 1901. It's just before dawn. Yeah, just about. The sky is already beginning to show some streaks of light in it over there in the east, back of our mountain. The morning star gets wonderful bright the moment before it has to go. 
The only lights on in the town were in a cottage over in Polish town where a mother's just giving birth to twins, and down in the depot where Shawnee Hawkins is just getting ready to flag the 545 for Boston. There she is now. Of course, naturally, out in the country all around, there have been lights on for some time, what with milking and so on. But uh, town folks sleep late. Here comes Joe Crowell delivering the morning papers. So, another day has begun. Here comes Doc Gibbs from that baby case I was telling you about. And this is Doc Gibbs' house. His neighbor is Editor Webb. There's Mrs. Gibbs coming downstairs to get breakfast. Later on, about 1910, she's going out to visit her daughter Rebecca in Canton, Ohio. Mrs. Gibbs is going to die there. Pneumonia. But she's going to be brought back here and she's going to be buried in the cemetery right here in our town with a whole mess of Gibbses and Percy's. In our town, we like to know the facts about everybody. Our Town was a 1940 Hollywood film released by United Artists, and adapted from the play Our Town, which had only premiered on Broadway two years earlier. It was a huge hit, uh, really struck a chord with late Depression, kind of early World War II audiences. Uh, this was the time, of course, before America joined the war, so there was sort of an isolationist spirit, and I'm sure in a way that played into it too, this sort of look back at the cozier past. But the play is not just an exercise in nostalgia. It's also a somewhat avant-garde production, bringing in ideas of meta-theater, where this, there's a character called the stage manager who speaks to the audience all the time and incorporates them into the show. And it was all, the, the play was actually done without props and sets. Most listeners are probably at least somewhat familiar with it. This is still a really beloved play that's often produced at uh, schools. The connection that I'm going to draw with Twin Peaks is to the movie. And that's interesting because there are some differences in some ways, and some of them, I think, uh, interplay interestingly with Twin Peaks. But it is worth noting, although it doesn't take the spare minimalist approach of the play, it does retain the stage manager character and this idea of sort of like a chorus commenting on the town and interacting with, in this case, the movie audience. Characters sometimes turn and address the audience, and then at other times they unfold as if they're unaware of the audience, which is an interesting conceit. So here we have a portrait of small-town Americana sort of intersecting with this more avant-garde aesthetic approach, and also with some interest in kind of the darker realities of death and loss and sadness that lurk beneath the the kind of picket fence surface. Not to the extent of something like Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks, but it is still there, particularly before they take a detour into a full-on Hollywood ending in the end, which we'll talk about. It's worth noting that if this play has sort of become a beloved warhorse over time, it was like really fresh at this point. I mean, two points in, two years in, I mean, this was something that this was like practically ripped from the the headlines, you know, this this brand new hit play adapted as a Hollywood film. So they're trying to figure out how to put this on the screen. And it's got a great cast. It's got William Holden as uh, the main character, George. A curious bit of casting in that case, I would say, because the image you have of William Holden from his later films, Wild Bunch and Sunset Boulevard and uh, Sabrina and all those is sort of this cavalier, tough guy character, like more cynical, definitely worldly. 
and he is not worldly in this film. He is like aw shucks in his way all around. It's almost uncomfortable to watch at times. He plays to the hilt, and I think it's an earnest performance, and I kind of like it for that. It's kind of endearing for that, but it's awkward at times, and not just in the way the character is supposed to be. And I do think part of that's the baggage of seeing William Holden in this role. Martha Scott is the actress who was brought from the stage. She created the role of Emily Webb on Broadway and plays her in this film and got an Academy Award nomination for it. I didn't recognize her from anything else, but I looked her up after and realized she plays Charlton Heston's mom in two of my favorite biblical films as a kid that I used to love, the big screen spectacle uh, Bible adaptations of The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. So although she's only 10 years older than Charlton Heston, you know, Hollywood has its way of of, uh, casting women who are over 40. So she gets to play his mom in both. Of course, uh, in Ten Commandments, the mother is a younger mother with the, you know, the baby and the bulrushes and such. Faye Bainter and Beulah Bondi play the mothers, and Thomas Mitchell and Guy Kibbe play the fathers, two of my favorite actors, uh, favorite character actors from this era for sure. And I loved Frank Craven as the stage manager. He also originated that role on the stage. It was what he was most famous for all his life. And it's a great combination of little bit on the outside commentator character who, uh, although we do see him running like a soda fountain at some point, uh, at least I think that was him. It looked just like him. But standing outside the town commenting on it, but also part of its sort of warm atmosphere and comfortable with the characters there. It's it's an interesting conceit. So now Twin Peaks and R-Town. First of all, it's worth mentioning that Thornton Wilder is uh, one of Mark Frost's favorite writers. And R-Town is his favorite play, period. And he began as a playwright, Mark Frost. That was his training and his original kind of orientation before he got into TV and then film writing and then eventually novels and nonfiction, which is what he mostly writes now. But he loves this portrait of small town. Didn't say why in the article I read. It's a great article in uh, the local paper for OJ the town uh, Ohe or Oje, where he lives now in Southern California. It's a small town that he talks about loving for its small town vibe. And he did not grow up in small towns. He was a city kid, but he did summer in a small New York town that influenced Twin Peaks. And I think he probably connects to that aspect, but also just to the themes of the sort of cycle of life. So the story of the film is basically the courtship of George and Emily, The first section, they're just students that don't really realize yet if they're in love or how to deal with it. And then the second part of the film is their marriage and their hesitations and doubts, and then they go forward with it. And the final part is Emily seems to die in childbirth, and we see her vision of like the afterlife where the characters are all moored in where they're buried, and they look out over the town because the cemetery is on a hill overlooking the town. And they watch their lives unfolding, but they're also very focused on the past initially. They want to go back and relive the days from their their past, but slowly they move away from that. They become more detached. And there's a sense that in which this is sort of a limbo where they're inhabiting almost, you could say, a bardo state, as many people like to talk about with relation to Twin Peaks, uh, because they are learning to sort of move beyond the life that they were attached to on Earth, but also seeing how wonderful it was and how they weren't even really able to cherish it at this time and uh, this is one way I think in which it ultimately relates to kind of the overall arc of Twin Peaks particularly Laura's story but uh, I'll save that for last one thing I really like about the introduction to this movie is its character walks out on the hill and he points out at the town below him the stage manager character and they have this gorgeous little set. I don't know if it's a, how much of it's a miniature, how much of it's a matte painting, how much of it 
is uh, is what is a backdrop, a photographic backdrop or, or what. But it's this beautiful like vista of this town and the character kind of showing it to us. And it made me realize we never see anything like this in Twin Peaks. Uh, we get this portrait of a small town through its little pieces and we're kind of given a sense of it. But there are no like overhead, even in the new series where there's all these drone shots, there's no overhead view of the whole town. And there's almost a sense in which it can't exist collectively that way because it's you know shot in a few different towns it's it's a it's a creation of the mind in a way twin peaks the show has more in common in that sense with the play our town in which we don't see any set or set or backdrop or even props it's all in the imagination uh, and twin peaks of course they do create this wonderful little disneyland effect of all these different sets uh, which they do in our town in a more Broadway where we're looking out over all of it it's still in fragments there we can't get that big picture and even if we hunger for it in a way and another thing about uh, our town and and Twin Peaks and kind of seeing them in conjunction that way is this idea of the passage of time first of all when the character is showing us this this survey of the town he says this is what it looks like in 1940 but here it is in 1901 and he kind of waves his hand and it's a much simpler scene it's it's now dawn instead of nighttime both his words and this sort of suggestive image are so evocative and uh, we're going back to this earlier era. And as he's showing the people, he's saying this character, she's going to die in 10 years and describes how she's going to die as we see her go about her everyday activities. And then, of course, at the end of the film, as all the, all the sort of dead characters hover in this sort of star field, and one of them goes back, Emily goes back, and she is, is this sort of ghostly figure moving through her day. Uh, we're again getting this sense of like the the passage of time and the 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 fact that we're all sort of on this road to death, and uh, these moments are fleeting. And both the most eternal thing there is and the most ephemeral thing there is in this sort of contradictory way. Now, this is not something we really get in the old series, except in the sense that it's all about Laura Palmer and she died before the series began, so they're all reaching back for this thing that's gone. But it is something that's a huge part of the return. I think the return is where Twin Peaks becomes its most R-Towny. That's the part of the Twin Peaks story where suddenly it is all about these characters who grew older with time who were getting these little glimpses into their lives. And there's something so poignant about it. Like, for example, stopping in with Bobby and Shelly and like, oh my God, for 20 years they've had this daughter, they've had their own problems to deal with, they got divorced, and there's like... A sadness to it a sense of almost like we knew these characters when when we watched them in the original series we got to know them as they were being developed as characters and now it's like we're coming back to see them and it's like seeing an old friend who you lost touch with and it's great but you realize their lives have moved on and you weren't a part of it for this whole stretch or whatever and there's that sense in the return i think and you get it a little bit in our town where we're not able to see crucial incidents in the in the uh, town's life you know we're just told about it and we're so we're like alienated at the same time we're drawn in and that is a huge part of the return i think so before we talk about both the ending of the film and that theme of moving beyond the corporeal life into sort of this spiritual realm uh, that I think ties in with Firewalk with me. I want to just go over some of the notes I took where I was, as I was watching things that sort of occurred to me. One thing is this, this idea that I keep coming back to that Grail Marcus wrote about with Twin Peaks, where it's both the Sylvan village and the, uh, the noir city at the same time. 
this sort of paradox. We don't get much of that in our town, of course. It's just the Sylvan City most of the time. Or I guess Sylvan means wooded, I think. So whatever the, the field meadow equivalent of that is. But we do get that early shot where it's the city at night. It's this bustling 40s, a bit more sprawling, bigger population. And then the narrator waves his hands and it dissolves into this dawn view of this bucolic little countryside. And so that reminded me of that of that quote, which is great. The piece of Twin Peaks work that our town most resembles arguably might be the secret history of Twin Peaks, at least the Twin Peaks sections of it. Obviously, it doesn't have much to do with all the Project Blue Book UFO material. Jack Parsons and all that is pretty far afield from our town. But when he goes into the history of the town, uh, maybe the access guide would be an even better example. But the access guide is sort of more on the surface. A secret history lets us linger with these characters and experience the passage of time and mortality. The log lady's speech that she writes, or her yeah, her speech she gives for the occasion of um, Jacoby's brother's death in the secret history. I have to think Mark Frost had our town in mind when he wrote that about the fleetingness of life. And I think we'll end with maybe a quote from Our Town and then a quote from from that passage as well. It's very evocative of that. And uh, another thing that, that sort of stuck out to me watching the film, very different sense, but you can see Frost and I think Lynch, especially in this case, drawing on this trope, the parents calling up to the children. So as we're introduced to the different families, we see the mothers, they're down in the kitchen bustling around and they call up, get up for school, you gotta get up for school. And so for Lynch to use that in Twin Peaks, I've always sort of thought of it as this Lynchian touch, the sort of the poignance of it. Frost must have had Our Town in mind writing that with Lynch because that's so evocative, the mother calling to the child and not even knowing they aren't there anymore. And of course, that aspect of it, we don't get in Our Town, although eventually the daughter will die. And actually several of the children died. Her brother dies as well of appendicitis off screen. So there is this haunting idea of the parents outliving the children, because I think her parents are still alive, or at least one of them is. There's also a character cutting a pie. I had to take note of that, of course, cutting up the pie for the kids. We get some young love, which, as I mentioned with William Holden, very much plays up the sort of gawky, ah, shucks, you know, turn of the century, young love uh, idea. And we see more of that with James and Donna in the show, I think. They're kind of those old innocent characters straight out of our town. And I should note, uh, Martha Scott, I think, does, I don't want to say better, but I guess better with this material. There's a great scene where they're in a drugstore and her and William Holden are talking. You know, he's he's in his early 20s. He's pretty young at this time, but he almost feels like he's playing like a 12-year-old or something. Whereas she's got this amazing array of facial expressions that she kind of goes through. She's listening and realizing he's in love with her and that she can say she's in love with him. It's a very winning moment. I'm not sure we get that many moments like that with James and Don on the show, but maybe when they're in the woods in the pilot, that's a pretty effective moment for that. And uh, I think both Lynch and Frost, you know, maybe they chuckle at it a little, but they have a real affection for it as well. And speaking of the access guide before, the, the spin-off book of Twin Peaks that gives you an overview of the history of the town and its society, there's a professor in the movie who's like a walking access guide for Grover's Corners, which is the name of the small town in uh, our town. And he just kind of gives all these facts about like precipitation and the history and the stage manager's just kind of like, okay, all right, this is a little too much but uh, letting him do it at the same time. And the film ends with a memorable funeral for a young woman, which of course makes us think of Laura's funeral in, in Twin Peaks. And then the character sort of speaking from beyond the grave and looking back at the life in the town. And this reminded me of a theory that somebody once had 
uh, Hussein Ibish, who wrote uh, beautifully about the end of Firewalk with me, that he thought Laura was watching Twin Peaks in the in the red room, that that blue light is not coming from the angel, but from a TV set playing the show about the aftermath of her death and the humor of the town and the sadness of the town as she laughs and cries. It's just this beautiful idea that very much relates back to our town and Emily looking at the town and seeing it that way. So with all that, uh, I do want to note too, personally, I just connect, I, I like watching this film because I grew up in New Hampshire, not like small kind of, I was more near the seacoast, so it's a little bit different area, but you know, there's something evocative about seeing this sort of New Hampshire landscape where this film takes place. And also, I wrote, uh, I never actually even wrote it as a screenplay, but just had this idea about a movie years ago. And there was like a particular image that stuck with me of someone sitting up in a tree and looking out and they can see the whole town unfolding below. And then there's like another section sort of close to them. And then this landscape off into the horizon, which, you know, we've seen in various films and read in various books, but it was just a very vivid image to me. And I don't, even though I'm into film as a visual medium, I don't often think of in images that precise, but something about appealed. So seeing that opening of our town, I just loved. And it made me wish in a way, we could see something like that with Twin Peaks, even if it lives in our imagination as this kind of amalgamation of the, all these different locations. But maybe if there's another season, we'll get an image of that would be pretty cool, I think. So finally, I want to close off with a few quotes. Actually, I want to discuss something that I just found interesting that they left out of the movie. This doesn't relate to Twin Peaks, but I, I wanted to bring it up. I was looking over the play, and there's an exchange that is in the movie where the stage manager is talking to Mr. Webb the town publisher. And of course, I should note, it goes without saying, but there's so many like sort of quirky homespun characters around the town, a real ensemble in our town that also feels like it shaped Twin Peaks, especially for Frost, who loved that aspect of the town, the idea of this ensemble and all their little stories being part of this bigger tapestry of, of the community. So anyways, the stage manager's talking to Mr. Webb, the publisher, and in the film, somebody calls out, is there no one in town aware of... And he goes, oh, we got, we're out of time. And they just close it off there. And it's interesting when you read what's actually in the play and you're like, oh, that's what they cut from the movie. So the stage manager in the play says, come forward, will you, where we can all hear you? What were you saying? And the man who is listed as belligerent man at back of auditorium says, is there no one in town aware of social injustice and industrial inequality? And Mr. Webb, the publisher, says, oh, yes, everybody is. Something terrible. Seems like they spend most of their time talking about who's rich and who's poor. And the belligerent man says, then why don't they do something about it? And then it says he withdraws without waiting for an answer. And Mr. Webb says, well, I don't know. I guess we're all hunting like everybody else for the way, for a way the diligent and sensible can rise to the top and the lazy and quarrelsome can sink to the bottom. But it ain't easy to find. Meanwhile, we do all we can to help those who can't help themselves and those that we that can, we leave alone. Are there any other questions? And moves on from there. I'm wondering if they cut that out of the film. Uh, you know, it's not like they couldn't bring up political topics, especially 1940. This is pre the post-war Red Scare. And they do actually mention a few lines before that in the movie. The guy Kibby character who's playing this publisher, Mr. Webb, says uh, the town is 86% Republican. Uh, six only 6% Democrat, but there's 4% socialists. So there's almost as many socialists as Democrats, which is an interesting marker of that period where that was often true. Socialism was actually kind of on the rise and uh, in many places in like 1900. The other thing I wonder is apparently Thornton Wilder came in for a lot of criticism from Marxist critics in the early 30s. Particularly, there was one Marxist critic who wrote about his work scathingly 
and it seemed to, he seemed to have a real sensitivity to criticism. He stopped writing for years because his work was too heavily criticized. And I wonder if this was him with this belligerent man who doesn't actually want an answer. He just wants to complain if this was his surly caricature of some of the people criticizing him. I don't know. But for whatever reason, it didn't make it into the movie. Now, the main place that the film departs from the play is that the character Emily doesn't actually die in the film. They turn it into a dream that she awakens from. This is not what the original play was going for at all. And when I was looking at the video on YouTube of this, uh, the whole film is uploaded on there. And uh, somebody commented that they totally missed the point of the play, that you have to move beyond these things and not just settle back into the cozy the coziness of, of this life or whatever. But, you know, for whether you feel like you need the upbeat relief or not, that's the end of the movie. And uh, I felt like I remembered the play being different. I looked back, and sure enough, the the play does not end that way. It ends with her remaining with these, these dead figures. And I don't think the dream conceit would have worked the same way in the play, given how it's staged. It just it would have seemed even more arbitrary. Whereas in the film, at least, it kind of flows out of the fact that we've seen her on her supposed deathbed uh, before we kind of fade into that. And she's looking at the pictures of all the old relatives, and then they sort of transform into the the spirits of the dead. Here's a couple quotes I want to end on. First is uh, Hussein Ibish talking about the end of Fire Walk With Me and how he reads that moment. He says, I think most the most obvious reading of this scene is that what she's looking at is not exactly an angel, but in fact, or also a television. There is a dynamic engagement in her effect that can't really be responding to the static angel figure. And what she's watching is Twin Peaks, crying at her own tragedy and the grief of her friends and family, laughing at the absurdities and the eccentricities of her friends and neighbors, and probably validated by the impact that her murder had on the community. There isn't just joy in her reactions, but great amusement and some raucous laughter. Whatever it is, it's certainly the cream of the jest. And then here's the quote from Our Town. Before I read this, I just want to comment on on sort of how I see Firewalk with me and the, the arc it leads us toward. I think part of Laura's success is in that film and why she ends up with the angel is moving beyond the kind of flat plane of reality that she's engaged with. And I think that corresponds a lot with Lynch's uh, theories, Lynch's, uh, well, spiritual views about the greater reality, the broader reality, the all that each of the little pieces can can go rejoin. And to do so, as in many great spiritual traditions, you have to let go. You have to let go of your attachment to the material world. Here's a quote where the stage manager talks about what it means to be dead in the cosmology of this play. Now, there are some things we all know, but we don't take them out and look at them very often. We all know that something is eternal. And it ain't houses, and it ain't names, and it ain't earth, and it ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something is eternal, and that something and that something has to do with human beings. All the greatest people ever lived have been telling us that for 5,000 years, and yet you'd be surprised how people are always losing hold of it. There's something way down deep that's eternal about every human being. You know as well as I do that the dead don't stay interested in us living people for very long. Gradually, gradually, they lose hold of the earth, and the ambitions they had, and the pleasures they had, and the things they suffered, and the people they loved. They get weaned away from earth, that's the way I put it, weaned away. And they stay here while the earth part of them burns away, burns out. And all that time they slowly get indifferent to what's going on in Grover's Corners. They're waiting. They're waiting for something that they feel is coming. Something important and great. Aren't they waiting for the eternal part in them to come out clear? 
Some of the things they're going to say maybe will hurt your feelings, but that's the way it is. Mother and daughter, husband and wife, enemy and enemy, money and miser. All those terribly important things kind of grow pale around here. And finally, I want to close with Mark Frost's words from The Secret History in the voice of the log lady, clearly inspired, I think, by the end of our town and how much he loved that play and its, its vision of life through this small community, through the, the broader stream of life in the broader world. He writes, Margaret holds her log and looks around, really looks, for some time before speaking. This is now, and now will never be again. Blue sky, cool air, and green, green forests, mountains, lakes, and streams. The wind, the wind. Water, earth, air, and fire, red, yellow, purple, and white, we come from the elemental and return to it. There is change, but nothing is lost. There is much we cannot see, air, for instance, most of the time, but knowing our next breath will follow our last without fail is an act of faith, is it not? Dark times will always come, as night follows day. Trust and do not tremble in the face of the unknown. It shall not remain unknown to you for long. Robert knows this now, as will we all in the sweet by and by. And that's it for this discussion. But next month, we will continue the small town blues theme with the third and last of these films. This one was actually cited as like a direct influence, or not so much influence, because I think Lynch and Frost weren't that big of a fan of it, actually, but uh, a film that when they were pitched, the idea of why don't you make like a you know, small town drama on TV, this was the film that was cited because it also spawned a soap opera for many years. So this film is Peyton Place. And of course, before that, just as always, if you support this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This is probably one of the more marginal things I put out there, like the Lost in the Movies feed gets a little more, Lost in Twin Peaks feed gets more listeners than that. Um, maybe I should have put them all on one feed, but I like having this independent. So if you like that too, please put the word out there and, and recommend these and, uh, and, uh, add to the, uh, Apple podcasts, uh, algorithm or whatever platform you listen to, but uh, Apple podcasts is definitely the best way to bring in more listeners. Here's a little bit of Peyton place to take you out. The town everyone's talking about all the people of Peyton place with all their joys and sorrows, passions and compassions are on the screen at last. I'm going to tell you a hard truth about yourself. It isn't sex you're afraid of. You can say yes or no to that. It's love. That's what you can't handle. There's a place I know that I'd like to show you. That no one knows about. Not even you. It's my secret place.